Welcome to Here Comes Yesterday, a weekly 15-minute podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world ahead with your host, Frank Corrado. In this episode, we're talking cars. The comedian Mario Lopez says there are three things that men talk about. Women, sports, and, yep, you guessed it, cars. The challenge here in this episode is how to include everybody in a podcast about cars. There are lots of people, many on the distaff side, but also including yours truly, who only think about cars in the background. That is, we only think about cars when something isn't working. I have a friend who uh, says cars are simply uh, a depreciating asset, and so that's her concept of driving. But there's a much larger world out there of people who really do care about cars, who define themselves by what they drive, who aspire always to the next level. The Prius owner who wants a Tesla, the Ford escape driver who wants to escape to an Escalade, and so it goes. The only time in my adult years that it was ever any real fun to think about cars was back in the day on public radio when we had those wonderful mechanic guys from Boston, Tom and Ray Maliachi, click and clack, who entertained us on Saturday mornings because they had such great connection, not with the cars, but with the people, most of whom had really old beaters. These days, it's only when the little red check engine light goes on that uh, I really think about cars. That's because I do a lot of driving for the farm, so I do think about driving a lot, but cars themselves, not so much. When we think back over the years about the cars we've owned, each often represents where we were at different times in our lives. My earliest car memories are riding in maybe a 30-something Plymouth as a little kid during World War II, thinking about how cold it was in that car in the winter. I remember hearing my father say something about hydromatic transmission, something that came with a Cadillac or a Buick where you didn't have to use a clutch. Way out of our class in those years, weirdly enough, After my first car, I didn't actually buy a car with automatic transmission until the late 90s. Also, I remember my father having to roll down his window and stick his left arm out for a turn signal. I really am dating myself, I know. And I do remember my mother crashing a 47 Olds into a light pole with my brother and I riding along. No seatbelt back then. She never could get the hang of driving and gave up after that accident. I also recall that after World War II, you had to go to an auto testing station because cars were really old then from the war, not being able to produce any, and they were pretty beat up. I don't think it was until the mid-50s that we really started getting decent cars to drive. But the first really nice car, which I eventually inherited as a high school senior, was a 55 Dodge Coronet three-tone. It was known as a two-door hardtop convertible, a real beauty and with real horsepower, I think around 365 horses. Way too much for a 16-year-old like me to be allowed to handle. Cars of the 50s, as everybody knows, were built for style. 
and this one had it. I'm going to jump ahead to college graduation when my father, God rest his soul, presented me with this amazing auto, a first edition Ford Mustang 1964. Maybe because I was the first kid on his side of the family who went to college. Oh, it was a real beauty, red with a black top. And oh, I wish I'd have hung on to that car. But like many groundbreaking autos of that era, it did have a lot of mechanical problems. In 1966, as I reported to the Army, a car all of a sudden was not a very important thing to have. So my new wife, who was living in South Bend while I was off in the Far East, was able to tool around South Bend with it and to engage in those small-town weekend rituals like driving in and out of the local drive-ins, something that teens and young adults did on Friday nights back then. Our big plan was after the Army, we would camp our way through Europe for the summer of 1968. For that adventure, we decided to buy something called a Volkswagen Squareback, basically a Volkswagen station wagon, which we would pick up in Luxembourg and which would be outfitted with a set of hinges that allowed the seat in the back to push forward and become a bed. It wasn't unusual back then at campgrounds, especially in Germany for some reason, where people would peer into the car's windows early in the morning while we were still asleep. Part of the deal with the squareback was that it was going to be shipped back home after our trip. That actually worked quite well. My next memory is of our expanded family, two little kids. It was now in the 70s. We were driving with my father-in-law, Clem, down to Florida in a Chevy Vega. What a horrible car, as anybody who remembers it will tell you. And boy, were we all packed in. It was known in our family lore as the silver bullet, but if it was a bullet, it was a real dud. Ask yourself, have you ever seen one of them? Or for that matter, its ugly twin, the Ford Pinto, ever at a classic car rally? I don't think so. In the 80s, Lee Iacocca and the folks at Chrysler decided to put a van body on a car frame, and that forever changed the automobile. The minivan was born, to be followed a few years hence by its cousin, the SUV, a car body on a truck frame. I was an early adopter of the minivan. Actually, I was driving a Subaru when they came out, so I talked my brother-in-law into getting one so I could live vicariously. But it wasn't but a few years more that I got my first red and black Plymouth Voyager, the first of many minivans, which I drove for over 25 years. They had amazing carrying capacity. Do-it-yourselfers like me could easily load sheets of plywood plus lots of other things into them. As each of my children entered their teen years during this period, they went through their own list of autos. A VW convertible for my daughter that somehow wrapped itself around a street pole after a raucous teenage party. A low-end Toyota Corolla, nicknamed the Lizard, for its green Earl Scheib paint job. A little sidebar here. I have a friend who has contended for many years that all green cars come with dents and other physical impairments on them. Lizard ferried my son Joe to high school for two years before God knows what happened to that. While I was on a teaching sabbatical at Northwestern University during that time, 
A midlife crisis found expression in the form of another green car, a 1980 MG Midget sports car. It was the last year that that car was made. The color was officially known as BRG, British Racing Green. Yes, another green car. My experience with this low center of gravity toy was, if nothing else, star-crossed. British sports cars were legendary for mechanical problems. Electrical components for MGs were made by a company called Prince Electric, also known as the Prince of Darkness. Nevertheless, for the brief couple of years we owned it, it was so much fun. Once I packed a couple of publishing reps from Prentice Hall in it with the top down one noon for a joyride. Interestingly enough, a publishing offer arrived shortly thereafter for my first book. They must have had a good time. How we decided in the 90s that our second car should be a Ford F-150 truck with twin gas tanks, I just don't remember. I do remember we were in a period of cheap gas, thank the Lord, and that while it looked impressive, the sway bar on this big Bertha made steering a continually uncertain endeavor, especially on those three-hour trips to Michigan with my aging mother, who was game, but sat in the middle of the truck bench holding on for dear life. It was amazing how many friends during that uh, period borrowed this car for various chores. When I finally got tired of it, and in one of those rare victories over a car dealer, I ended up trading it in for more money than it was really worth. As my son Joe entered his second year at the University of Montana around the turn of the century, it became apparent that he needed a set of wheels. When we originally took him to school, we did it with a flourish, traveling out west on the Amtrak Empire Builder to Whitefish, Montana, then hiring a guide for a fishing float down on the famed Clark Fork River. But for the second year, he had to have a car to get there on his own. Somewhere, I can't remember, we found a commercial panel truck version of a minivan was painted white, again white. It had come from some utility in Ohio. Originally, it had had a blue light on top, and Joe had a knack for getting parking tickets at school, but he still refused to listen to my advice that he put a large school decal on the side of the van and have somebody paint the phrase official student vehicle on the side of it. He probably could have parked anywhere. It wasn't until somewhere around 2015 that I finally ended my romance with minivans and in a somewhat ignominious way, selling my last one to a guy in a rundown neighborhood in Benton Harbor, Michigan, gave me 500 bucks for it because he wanted to use its low-to-the-ground design to take his infirm and aging dog to the park. Now, let me say at this point in my life, I was really getting tired of high-mileage used cars, tired of changing my own oil, tired of buying tires from Walmart that blew out on the highway, but I wasn't quite yet ready for the big time. I had to undergo one more rigorous test of my endurance with jalopies. In urgent need of wheels, I bought from my Syrian-born Russian-educated mechanic Jimmy the Lemon of All Lemons, a 2009 Jeep Patriot, mostly to be used for farm hauling. Like its predecessor, the Ford F-150, the Patriot was white. I hate white vehicles, and I'm glad I said it. Again, I hate white vehicles. 
Over the next few years, a list of things that went wrong with this car would easily fill its own podcast, but would be too painful for me to ever talk about. Let's just say during that time, I had the Jeep. By the way, the car did not even have power windows, let alone cruise control. I not only replaced every moving part on it, but I contributed substantially to Mechanic Jimmy's 401k. In the fall of 2020, the time of COVID, a series of unforeseen events transpired that happily separated me from that Patriot once and for all. It began on a warm summer evening in August, right in front of my own house. It was going to be cool overnight, and I decided to leave eggs for the morning market and fresh blueberries in the car overnight with the windows down. My thought was that no one would want to ever steal this lemon. I was wrong. When I woke up at 5 a.m., I must have had a premonition. I looked out the front window to assure myself all is well. The car was gone. First instinct, call the police. I did. They dutifully took down the information. I started writing down all the things I'd have to do now. Call the insurance people, inventory what was in the car, on and on. Who would have taken it? Where would it end up? Why would anybody take it? The questions went on for most of the coming week. Finally, I got a weird piece of mail. It was registered. It was from the city of Evanston saying I needed to get my car out of the pound. What? I was furious. I called the police and tried to keep my cool. I had reported it missing early in the morning. When was the car discovered? Why didn't somebody just call me? As I started asking questions, I learned that the car had been ditched about a block and a half from my home within minutes after it was stolen. Probably just a teen joyrider who quickly realized what a dud he'd stolen. I learned from neighbors near where it had been left that the policeman who responded to a call of an abandoned car crosswise in a driveway, the policeman told him it had been reported missing an hour ago. After ranting at the desk sergeant about why it didn't they just call me when it was found, he meekly waved some fees but I still had to pay to get it out of the towing company pound. A trip there the following evening was like a journey to automotive hell. The towing company had long had a bad reputation for its heavy-handed tactics. Showing up there and slipping the money through the bulletproof glass was only eclipsed by trying to find the car, which was wedged in the back of this junkyard from hell. The ultimate horror was seeing it full of smashed eggs and tipped-over blueberry lugs with raccoon tracks across the hood after the car had been sitting there for a week. A chat with knowledgeable friends helped me solve the mystery of this all, a cozy relationship between police officials and the towing company owners. Why call me? They called the guys they play footsies with. A lesson well learned. Finally, the farm bought me a decent car. A used Toyota Highlander, loaded, even has butt warmers. I just love it. As you know, these days cars are loaded with electronics. I keep thinking about my old Michigan neighbor, Lanny, who was a real shade tree mechanic. Lanny, like so many other guys, knew cars inside and out, but that was an earlier time. Now it's only about changing tires or oil. That's the only thing we're capable of doing now. I do a lot of driving still for the farm. 
especially during the fresh season, as we call this time of year when the fruit is being harvested. Books on tape from the library are the best balm for the professional driver's mind. Sometimes podcasts work also to occupy the mind. When I listen to them, it helps me keep focused. Funny, I've always thought one of the jobs I would never, ever want to do is cross-country driving. But I've done enough driving now to understand how hard it is on the mind and body, and I feel even more convinced I don't ever want to do that. These days, I'm actually looking forward to the era of driverless cars. If you've ever driven through Nebraska, you know what I mean. It will be like riding the Amtrak. Except, of course, there won't be much socializing. And that will be too bad. That's it for now. Stay smart, work hard. You've been listening to Here Comes Yesterday a podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world ahead. Your ideas and reactions can also be very useful. Contact Frank Corrado via email at corrado at c4m.com. That's C-O-R-R-A-D-O at the letter C, the number 4, the letter M, dot com. This is Mel Zellman. Thank you for listening, and catch us next time.